I recently read, or just this past week, read a book by a woman named Megan Phelps Roper. Does that name, anybody know that name? Megan Phelps Roper was uh, a part of a, a cult in Kansas that is very high profile and was especially um, early in the 2000s. They uh, are a very, very small sect, and they were famous for protesting the funerals of, uh, of soldiers from the war in Iraq and of holding up just really awful signs. They, uh, you know, that God hates Jews or God hates gay people or whoever. It's just, just a horrible thing. And they were very high profile and they loved to get on the news and, and just loved to scream about how hateful God is. And it was really unfortunate. Megan was born into this group. Uh, her, her grandfather was the, the founder and the pastor. And it was a brilliant family, actually. I was shocked to read about this because I always thought, like, maybe they're just a bunch of hillbillies who were just doing this thing, but it's actually not true. In fact, her grandfather was a highly accomplished civil rights attorney in the 60s. Uh, he had represented uh, uh, some really high-profile cases in defending black people in days of segregation and things like this. And somehow, that man ended up starting this, this group. And I, I, it, like I say, it really is a cult. It's, it's not even really a church. Um, and uh, so... Poor Megan was raised in this and indoctrinated in this group from a very young age. And uh, she began to, as she got older, um, she began, she just had that same intellect, that savviness and communication. And she, by the time she was in her late teens and early 20s, had taken over a bunch of the communications of Westboro Baptist Church. And she had become the lead uh, spokesman for this group on Twitter. Now, Twitter's already, <laughs> already a fiery place. So here's this woman who was taking all of this and all these slogans and all this, I mean, really is such a hateful stuff and, and was putting it out there on Twitter, you know, and this is inflaming like crazy. Um, well, over time, though, something started to happen. These people that she was lashing out against kind of befriended her. And it was really weird at first. They'd start interacting, and then, you know, they, she would realize, okay, they have some interesting points. And then they would start direct messaging and things like this. And, uh, and, and through compassion, humility, and curiosity, things started to happen. Here's something she said in a TED Talk she gave. She said, sometimes the conversation even bled into real life. People I'd sparred with on Twitter would come out to the picket line to see me when I protested in their city. A man named David was one such person. He ran a blog called Julicious. <laughs> Isn't that great? And after several months of heated but friendly arguments online, he came out to see me at a picket in New Orleans. He brought me a Middle Eastern dessert from Jerusalem where he lived, and I brought him kosher chocolate and held a sign that said, God hates Jews. Weird, huh? So all these conversations and interactions started to put cracks in her foundation until soon, you guys, she, she realized she didn't believe the things that she was supposed to believe. And by the mercy of God, she got out. She got out with her younger sister. And even though she, would, she knew that it would mean she'd get cut off by her family and the people in, in her sect forever, she got out. 
And she found herself being friended by many of the same people that she had protested. In fact, she became a guest in the home of the rabbi who she had been protesting and, and taking part in the symposium of all these people that she was lashing out against all that time. Now, this happened about 10 years ago. And in the meantime, Megan has, has gotten married. She married one of the main people who befriended her on Twitter, by the way, which I found fascinating. And she's become this advocate and spokesperson um, for uh, anti-bullying things and for, for like, just an advocate for open and respectful dialogue because it was open and respectful dialogue that really saved her. So against all odds, this woman who was raised in this thing now has become this like beloved figure. She wrote this book, it's called Unfollow. I highly recommend it, it's really good. It inspired me, I was really inspired by it. She's become this, 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 this very different person. And the reason I tell this, I, I wanna open the sermon with this story is because I think it's so important for us to be reminded that transformation is indeed possible. People really can be transformed. And if Megan Phelps Roper can be transformed. I think probably any of us can be transformed. Amen? So this morning, I want to read through a psalm of pilgrimage. It's my favorite psalm in the Bible. It evokes a sense of longing for, for our true home, longing to finally arrive at the place we've been moving toward, to, to the courts of the Lord and finally be at peace. Because all of us, friends, are on a journey just like Megan, and we all want to arrive at a place. And sometimes I just like to, to let the Psalms wash over me. So this morning, I want the Psalm to wash over us. It's Psalm chapter 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy for the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. Can you feel that sense of longing in the psalmist? I can. Because see, I'm a pilgrim too. I'm on a journey, we're all on a journey, and, and we haven't arrived yet. And, and the fact that we haven't arrived can actually be kind of a source of frustration for me, for many of us, because we can get stuck on this journey. We can get stuck emotionally and spiritually. Maybe we have a habitual sin. Joshua talked about that last week about repentance and the necessity to turn away from sin. And even after we've made that decision to turn away from those things that have entangled us, we can have great frustration whenever there's a setback, whenever we get caught up in it again. We start getting really, really down on ourselves and we think, can I ever change? Can I ever really move forward? Can I ever sustain that repentance? Maybe you can relate to that. It could be many areas that that applies to. There's the obvious. He was talking about lust. That's an obvious one. Uh, anger is an obvious one. Could be uh, um, 
It could be drunkenness. It could be so many different things for each one of us, but it's that thing that we have trouble separating away from for an extended period of time. That can be a frustrating thing when you can't move forward on your journey. But it might not be a sin issue at all. There's other things that end up stopping our, our progress. There's, there's all kinds of things that we could, that, that can get us into a rut. And one of the things that, well, maybe we don't talk about quite enough here at church are, are mental health problems. I mean, back in my day, everything sort of went in the spiritual bucket. You know, it was sort of like, if you're having issues with depression or anxiety or something, that's clearly just a spiritual issue and you haven't prayed enough. It was that kind of thing. And I just know that's simply not true anymore. Our minds and our bodies have all sorts of chemicals racing through them. And if things are off balance, well, you can get stuck in some different ways. I mean, there's a pretty high percentage of people in this room, if <laughs> statistically speaking, who deal with things like anxiety and depression. I'm not going to ask you to stand up, don't worry. <laughs> but these are very real things. And they can, they can feel eternal and they can feel inevitable. Like I just can't seem to move forward no matter how hard I try. And sometimes even getting out of bed can be a struggle. Mental health struggles can paralyze us just like sin struggles can paralyze us. And there's a sort of shame that can creep in and say things like, you know, you should be past this already. You shouldn't still be on this journey. You should have arrived. You shouldn't be feeling this thing. You shouldn't be tempted by this thing. Your, your blood pressure should not be spiking before this thing. You shouldn't still be sad. Are you still sad? I think whatever, whatever our hangups, we all just want to be further than we are, you know? And sometimes we feel powerless to move forward. Anybody relate? But the psalmist tells us where our power lies. Let's go back to verse 5, Psalm 84. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength, each one appearing before God in Zion. Oh, Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Can you feel the longing, the longing of pilgrimage, the longing to appear in the temple? of the Lord. There are only a handful of psalms that explicitly say or tell us the situation in which they were written. This is not one of them, but I have a pretty good idea as to why it was written. And there's a pretty incredible story behind it. Can I tell you the story? I'm asking permission. I'm going to do it whether you say yes or no. <laughs> but it sounds nice when I ask you, is it okay? Can I tell a story? The thing I'm going to do any time I get a chance anyway. It begins in the days of Moses. It begins after the Red Sea, after the escape from Egypt. After 
the, uh, uh, the, the mountain of the Lord and the Ten Commandments were given. It's after God said, will you be my people? And Israel said, yes, we'll be your people. We want you to be our God. After that, the story gets frustrating. If you know the story, it gets frustrating. It's spread out over the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And all kinds of maddening things happen. And one of the maddening things wasn't a thing. It was a guy. It was Aaron. Aaron was a maddening person in some ways. If I'm watching him from the side, I'm very frustrated, and many people were. Why do I say that? Well, Aaron... Aaron made some horrible mistakes. Remember, he started out as Moses' spokesperson. He was his brother. Um, some think he was more, served more like a translator, um, which I think is interesting. But he became something more than that. He became uh, the high priest of Israel. And while Moses was up talking to God on the mountain, you know the story. People panicked because they're like, where is he? Where did he go? What do we do? And then they turn to him and they say, Aaron, make us gods. Make us some gods that we can worship. Because as to Moses and this guy, we don't know what happened to them. And Aaron had a really good opportunity for a teachable moment here, you know, to say, hold on, guys. Don't forget the one who just brought you out of Egypt and opened up the sea. Remember the one who opened up the sea for you? That was just a couple weeks ago. Have you forgotten already? No, he didn't say that. He goes, uh... Okay, everybody, pass forward your earrings. They take up a collection of earrings and, and, and nose rings and toe rings or whatever, and they pass them all together. And he, he, he melts it all, and then he himself shapes this gold into an idol, into a golden calf, which was probably more like a young bull, which would have like represented not the gods of Egypt, but the gods of Canaan, particularly the god Baal. And he steps back after he's done this thing, goes, behold, God who brought you out of Egypt. That's Aaron. And then they all start worshiping in all the sensual ways that they worshiped back then. And they're having this worship service. And, and Moses comes down on the mountain and he's looking and he sees, the, he sees this and he looks over at Aaron. And Aaron has the audacity to say this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, this. Oh, yeah, they threw the gold into the fire and out came this calf. <laughs> out came this calf. He said that thing. Great judgment came because of that day. And if I'm sitting there watching it, I'm going, Who, how is this man in a place of authority? <clears throat> a lot of people did think that in fact. And there were other things, too, that he did. Him and his sister, at one point, they tried to usurp Moses and think that, hey, you should go down a notch. You know why? Because he had a foreign wife. Get that. They thought because Moses had a foreign wife that they should be in charge. <laughs> crazy, crazy. And they get punished from the Lord for that. There's another time he, has his son, he installs his sons at high, as high priests, and his sons go and immediately offer up some strange fat sacrifice and they're struck dead by the Lord. And it appears from what it was that they probably went into the tabernacle to do a sacrifice while they were drunk. So if I am looking at Aaron, I'm going, hey, look, I have real doubts about this dude. <laughs> well, 
Turns out there were people who actually were saying those things and were talking and whispering to each other. We don't know exactly the timeline of when things happen because the timeline gets really muddy. But at some point, a group comes together and they say, hey, uh, we got to do something about this whole leadership situation. If it's in chronological order, then this would have happened right after God had said, you're not going into the promised land, right after they totally blew it. And God said, we're going to let the next generation come in, okay? If, if, it's, if it's in chronological order, it would have happened right then, which you could see people would have been really furious. So here's what happens. This group comes together. This, this secret re- rebellious group comes together, and there's hundreds of them, but there's three men at the top. And the main guy, his name is Korah. And he's the cousin, the first cousin of Moses and Aaron. That means he's from the tribe of Levi. Now, are you with me still? You still? Okay, okay. So it gets a little bit, it might get a little bit confusing here. The tribe of Levi God had set apart. And, and it was the, the tribe of Levi, their job was to take care of the tabernacle, was to take care of the sacrifices and all of the worship in Israel. That was their, they were set apart, this group. And it was this high honor But only Aaron and his descendants were the priests, okay? Only Aaron and his descendants. That means not his cousin. So Korah, he gets these co-conspirators together. He gets a couple guys from the tribe of Reuben. That was the oldest tribe. I think that was intentional. They probably felt a little ripped off that they should have been in charge in the first place. These two Reubenites and Korah, they finally... They finally get the nerve to stand up to Moses and Aaron. And they, they come and they say, uh, they say we, should, we should be in charge. You've gone far enough. In Numbers chapter 16, verse 9. I don't think I have that one. It's okay. Um, Moses says this. He looks right at his cousin Korah and he says this, is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel? Like, is it too small that he brings you near to himself to do service in the tabernacle and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? Is it too small that he's brought you near to him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it's against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? Oof. Moses put his finger right on it, didn't he? Right on it. He's like, you don't think this is a big deal. You don't see that God's put you in this high place. You, have, you are full of ambition and you want my brother's job. That's all this is about. So Moses says this. He says, let's gather together tomorrow at the tabernacle and the Lord is going to choose who's the leader. It's going to be either me and Aaron who he initially said was the leader, or he's going to choose you guys. So they come together in front of the tabernacle. This whole conspiracy is about 450 men uh, and their families against Moses and Aaron. And the glory of the, God, of the Lord comes over the tabernacle, and the Lord speaks to them, and he says, warn them to get away from, the, from Korah and Dathan and Abiram. And here's what Moses says. Listen, this is number 1626. Look at this. He spoke to the congregation, depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. You see that? Depart from the tents of these wicked men. Remember that phrase, or you be swept away. Next verse. 
The, war, or, uh, the warning's been given. So in verse 32, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down to Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And that is the end of Korah's rebellion. And that is the end of Korah's family. Except it's not. Sometimes you're reading the scripture and you're trudging along, guys. Deuteron- or, uh, uh, Leviticus and Numbers are hard to read. They are not the place I typically go for my devotions. It has to be something real special, let me tell you. Sometimes you're trudging along, though, in the midst of begats, so many begats. You, you come across something. And in Numbers chapter uh, uh, 26, it's 10 chapters later, it's recounting this story. And it says, but the sons of Korah did not die. Well, that's interesting. They did not die. And then if you trace down this group, see, he had three sons that were actually named in, in chapter 6 of Exodus. Their names were, if, if, I know there are probably some people about to have children. Their names were Asir, Elkanah. And Abiasap. I just want to recommend those three names. This could be wonderful. So these, these three sons of, of Korah did not die. And then they went on to have their own children. And then you can trace what happened. They became a clan of Levites, the Korahites. And as they get further down, as they go through the years, and you see as David organized all the Levites for worship, these guys become, they have a special job. They become gatekeepers in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And they also do more like, they're they're like renowned people. You know, one of the sons of Korah was Samuel the prophet, one of the most renowned men in the entire Old Testament, one of the greatest leaders they ever had. Another was a singer. And his name was He-Man. I'm quite serious. His name was He-Man. He-Man the Cantor. I don't think he wore, never mind. We're not going to get into his outfit. Those guys who grew up in the 80s know where I'm going with that. He-Man. What was, I don't. He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. And the of the Universe. Thank you. That was, I couldn't, I couldn't remember. You even told me that before and I couldn't remember. But the greatest thing that came out of these guys, the greatest thing that came out of the clan, the sons of Korah, were not people, but songs. And you probably know the name distantly in your head because many of the Psalms that we read have an attribution. Usually it's a Psalm of David, but there are 14 of our Psalms that say this, a Psalm of the sons of Korah. These are the same people, friends. And the Psalm we've been reading this morning, Psalm 84, is a psalm of the sons of Korah. And get this, friends. Are you ready for, I don't think you're ready for this. Are you ready for this? Get this. Let's go to, back to that, that verse. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Next verse. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I think those descendants wrote that psalm in commemoration of what happened with their ancestor. 
depart from the tents of wickedness, and they say, we're never going back there. We are content to be in the presence of the Lord. We are content here, just a doorkeeper. Can you imagine, friends, that moment? Here's what I think happened. They had that moment when Moses warns the family, the friends of Korah, get away from the men, get away from these tents of wickedness if you're not with them. Can you hear them say, I'm sorry, Dad? I can't stand with you. Can you picture that? I'm walking away from him. I've been so captivated by this scenario for years, and one of the things I can't go, get over is this. They kept the name. They kept the name. They didn't make up some other name. They didn't go by the names of the kids. They kept the name. That became part of their story. It became part of the beauty of their story. It's the same thing I was thinking with Megan Phelps Roper. She didn't change the name. She didn't have a new name for her writing. No, because that's become part of the story. This thing that was a source of shame has now become a place of honor because you walked away. Because transformation really took place. And there's an honor in that and there's a beauty in that. The sons of Korah... They had a grim history that became their honor. These songs, when you come across these psalms now, these were written by the ones who rejected the ambition of their father. They could have followed his trajectory in the past, but they did not. And you know why I'm telling you this story? Because I desperately want you to know this. Are you listening? I desperately want you to know this. Your history is not your destiny. Your history is not your destiny. I don't care what it looks like. It might have all seemed inevitable before. You might have thought your story was written. You might have thought you ruined it. You might have thought you're just stuck and that's just going to be the way it is because you have a history of not moving forward. So how can you ever really move forward and you're not going to and it's never going to get any better and you're going to be here forever. And I want to say that's nonsense. Look to the sons of Korah. Your history is not your destiny The Lord's not finished with you yet. Because as the psalm says, back to the psalm, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Oh, Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts you. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Let that sink into the crevices of your soul. I know you have a past, you guys. I get it. But what's that got to do with anything? That doesn't define your future. We have a choice today. And that choice is to simply put one foot in front of the other foot and keep walking. To take the next step to do the next thing and keep going. And sometimes we can get paralyzed because we're like, I want to get all the way there, you know? I want that transformation to be complete. Okay, I want to be like the sons of Korah, not like Korah. I want to get all the way there. But you guys, it's not your responsibility to get all the way there. It's your responsibility to take the next step. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ. It's not your responsibility to transform yourself. It's his responsibility to transform you. It's your responsibility to do this. Walk. One foot in front of the other and keep moving.
tell ourselves the and, and the enemy of our souls that our history is not our destiny. We are not finished and we're gonna keep walking to keep on this pilgrimage until at last we come to the place where his spirit, his glory dwells. This is a really personal message for me, uh, not just because I, I came, became rather obsessed with this story uh, years ago and ended up writing a really awful novel about it. <laughs> it's true. Sitting on my laptop, no, you can't read it, don't ask, it's terrible. <clears throat> and I, I just came so obsessed with the story. Uh, but it's, it's personal because I, I know what it's like to struggle with depression. And I know what it's like to feel stuck. And I know what it's like to feel hopeless that you're just never gonna be able to keep going. This kind of thing has, has uh, this has plagued me off and on for years. And, uh, and if I'm honest, this last year has been pretty brutal. It's been very difficult in this regard. And there've been a lot of times that I've gotten so upset with myself, thinking how can I still be here feeling so paralyzed by sadness and sorrow and fear and like what's wrong with me, you know? So, so I just have to do this little thing when I'm there. And here's the little thing. It's the next thing. Whatever the next thing is, to do it. Just do the next thing, not try to make it all the way there. And that meant last year, one of those, one of those simple steps was calling a counselor. And I did. I went through a couple of them <laughs> before I realized, you know, when you first call one and it's not jiving, it's okay. It's okay. Just move on. I did that quite quickly. I'm like, oh, you just want to talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I'm paying you, no, no. I'm the one who's going to talk. <laughs> <laughs> and I found one. And so for the last year, two or three times a month, I sit and I talk to this woman who helps me sort these things out. And, and helps me take the next step. And, and that's not a thing that everyone needs to do, but it was a thing that I needed to do. For some people, it's other things. For some people, it's like, hey, there might be, you might need to get some medication. That's not for everybody. That hasn't been for me. But for some people, that is a, that's a thing that's going to help. And I want you to know that there's no, there's no shame here. There's no shame if that's you, if you're dealing with these areas. Uh, I, I know there's spiritual components to everything, but there's physical components as well. You're not just a spirit. <laughs> you're not just a spirit with this casual body. You're both body and spirit. You really are. So we have both of these things happening. And I just want to tell you that if you're stuck in those places, walk with us. We're all dealing with stuff here. We're all dealing with our own brokenness. We're all pilgrims, each and every one of us. Do I stall out sometimes in this process? Yeah, you better believe it. So I have to surround myself with really good people that can help me figure out what is the next thing and stand up and let's walk together. And I hope that you have those people around you. If you don't, I hope that you'll avail yourself to us that we can at least help you however we can. I do stall out sometimes. Uh, and those are the worst times for me. So I, I lean back on the Lord Trusting that he who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it. And part of that step is just stepping back into his presence. It's not my responsibility to complete the work. I just need to show up, you know? 
We all just need to show up into what he's called us to do. Just like the sons of Korah who kept showing up in the courts of the Lord day after day. And when they were off duty, they wrote psalms about how they missed being there and they couldn't wait to get back into the presence of the Lord. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere, they would say. I would rather have a simple job just being a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than do anything else that would lead me to any other supposed high station because it's worth it being with you. We're all pilgrims, friends. We're all pilgrims. And he journeys with us. He journeys with us. I want to ask you guys to do something. I want I'm hesitating on this, but it's this. If you feel stuck, just in any way, we're not going to parse what that might mean for you. But I want to invite you to take a little step this morning, a step to put yourself back in, in the hands of the Lord. Take a little step. And that step is just standing. And I just want to pray. Can we do that? If you feel stuck in your spiritual life, in your emotional life, whatever that looks like for you, I think that's a word that resonates with some of us of like, yep, I know what that feels like to be stuck. Thank you guys. Anymore? Oh, good. All right. Let's pray. Let's hold our hands open like this. It's just a posture of receptivity. There's nothing magic about this, I promise. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for the vulnerability of these men and women. And I thank you for that desire that you have given to move forward, that desire that you have given to be unstuck, that desire that you have given to grow in the ways that you desire for us to grow. Lord, to move forward as pilgrims on our journey, to receive the beautiful gifts that you've given us, to experience your presence, and to taste the joy of the Lord that might seem like it's been a really long time since we've tasted it. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would blow through these hands, blow through these hearts. I pray that you would sing your song of hope for each and everyone who is standing here. We believe, Lord. We believe in your goodness that catapults us forward. We believe in your goodness. And we receive your hope. I pray these open hands now would be able to receive new hope.